Thank you very much indeed. There were some tricky names in there. I thought you negotiated them with great skill. Uh, Welcome everybody. It's lovely to see you, particularly if you're with us for the first time or visiting. Robin and Tracy, it's great to have you here, and Wesley as well. Well, uh, won't you bow with me, because certainly I need God's help to try and communicate the message of this passage, and I suspect you do too, so let's pray. God our Father, we thank you that every part of the Bible is given for our profit, that we might learn faith in Christ. And we pray with this very puzzling and perplexing chapter that you would help us to learn something of the gospel of Christ and the life of faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the the title of our series is Finding God in a Mad, Bad World. And of course, you don't need me to tell you that we are living in a mad, bad world. Uh, Whether it is land expropriation or poverty or uh, corruption or climate change or family breakdown or rising crime, we're constantly being reminded, aren't we, that there is much that is both mad and bad all around us. And from time to time, of course, every thinking Christian is driven to their knees, uh, calling on God to come down and sort out the mess. Uh, That's a right and a proper thing for Christians to be doing. But it's not actually the main concern in the book of Judges. Because Judges is not primarily concerned with the the madness and the badness in the world out there. Now, Judges is primarily concerned with the madness and the badness of the people of God. It's there in every single chapter of the book. And uh, in our series each week, we're we're hoping to find, aren't we, that, that Israel have woken up that they've turned a corner and things will start to get better, that they'll begin to serve God faithfully. And sometimes, for a short period, they do actually manage to do that. But it never lasts for terribly long, and they soon go back to their old ways. And uh, if that sounds discouraging, and I think it does, Nevertheless, we also have to admit that it is painfully realistic. Can any of us here this morning honestly say that we are living in constant victory against the most deeply entrenched sins in our lives? How was it for you this past week? Yesterday? This morning? If you think you are living in constant victory over your most deeply entrenched sins, won't you come and tell me about it afterwards? No, the truth is that even though we are not what we once were, yet we're not what we ought to be. None of us are. But having said that, the the book of Judges also gives us the balance. Because the good news in the book 
is the astonishing faithfulness of God with his unfaithful people. And that's the balance that we find once again in our passage this morning. Now last week in chapter 7 we saw that God gave Israel a decisive victory over the Midianites through Gideon, his spirit-filled champion. Actually it wasn't merely a decisive victory, it was also a supernatural victory because Gideon and only 300 men prevailed over 120,000 Midianite swordsmen, merely by blowing their trumpets and shining their torches. If that isn't supernatural, I don't know what is. Now, I guess in some ways it would be nice and tidy if the story of Gideon had ended there, but it doesn't. And uh, our passage this morning deals with what happened after that. And it's all extremely messy. What on earth are we to make of it? Well, let me say uh, one thing right at the beginning to help us when we're reading an Old Testament Bible story like this and we're wondering what on earth it means. Well, it's a very simple principle and it is this. The storyteller of an Old Testament story is both a historian and a prophet. In other words, he is writing history. These things actually happened. But he's also writing by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now, of course, with most historians, you and I are right to be suspicious. They're usually biased. They usually have an agenda. They want to make us understand history from their point of view. And sometimes what they write isn't even history at all. So we should be suspicious. But with Bible historians, that is not the case. With Bible historians, the question we should be asking is, what is your viewpoint? Because we believe that your viewpoint is God's viewpoint on these particular events. So, when we read uh, these Old Testament stories, what we need to do is to look for clues in the passage that tell us what the storyteller wants us to learn. Now, let's take that principle and apply it to Judges chapter 8. Because on the surface, nobody comes out of Judges 8 smelling of roses. Uh, even Gideon isn't actually the hero we were hoping for. Uh, some of the things that he does in this chapter are, I think, deeply disturbing. But it's very interesting that the storyteller doesn't say anything seriously critical about him. But the storyteller does make at least three explicit criticisms of the people of Israel. Just glance at them with me quickly, if you will. Look at verse 27, towards the end of the passage. Um, after Gideon has uh, made this uh, ephod, whatever that is, we'll come back to that later, halfway through verse 27, all Israel prostituted themselves 
by worshipping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So it's not good for Gideon and his family, but God's perspective is that Israel prostituted themselves. And they do it again in verse 33. Then look ahead to the second half of verse 33. The Israelites set up Baal Barith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who'd rescued them from all their enemies on every side. So can you see, Israel are not coming out of this at all well. And then in verse 35, they also failed to show kindness to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good things he'd done for them. So can you see that the storyteller seems to be saying to us that Gideon is basically a good guy. So at the end of the passage, in verse 32, we're told that Gideon dies at a good old age. And in the Old Testament, that is a sign of God's favour. Yes, he's got some rough edges. He could use some one-to-one discipleship. But according to the storyteller, he's basically okay. But the people of God, well, they're rubbish. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to work with that because by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that is the storyteller's viewpoint. And I want to suggest that we can learn from Israel's failings in the way that they relate to Gideon, their imperfect leader, something about how you and I should relate to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our perfect leader. So notice three mistakes that Israel made then that Christians have often been making over the centuries and I think are still making today. Number one, the success Syndrome. The success syndrome. Verse 24 of chapter 7 through to chapter 8, verse 3. Now, in this section, we meet these people called the Ephraimites. And you need to know that there are two big tribes in the north of the Promised Land there's Ephraim and there's Manasseh. There are one or two smaller tribes as well, but Ephraim and Manasseh are the big ones. Now those two tribes take their name from the two sons of Joseph, who was one of the twelve sons of Jacob. And Joseph's two sons were called Ephraim and Manasseh. And when you read the story of Ephraim and Manasseh in the book of Genesis, you find that those two brothers were rivals even from the moment they were born. They were always competing against one another. And over the centuries, the the rivalry between those two brothers becomes a rivalry between the two tribes. Now, what we need to get hold of by way of background in our chapter this morning is that Gideon is from Manasseh. We're told that in chapter 6. We're told it again in chapter 7. And these other people uh, that we just read about in chapter 8 
are from Ephraim. And when Gideon blew his trumpet back in chapter 6, he summoned his own tribe, Manasseh, and uh, three of the smaller tribes from up north, but he didn't summon the Ephraimites. And then Gideon went on and won this absolutely marvellous battle. And as the Midianites flee in chapter 7, verse 24... Gideon calls out the Ephraimites to come and help with the mopping up operation. And they do, and they capture two of the Midianite leaders. But then in chapter 8, verse 1, the Ephraimites are all upset. And they say to Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us out when you went to fight against Midian? And they criticised him sharply. In other words, they were saying, why didn't you call us out right at the beginning? Now, on the surface, it sounds really keen. Until you ask the question, why are they upset? I mean, after all, they should have been rejoicing at Gideon's victory, but they're not. They're upset. And the reason they're upset is because they didn't want to miss out on the success. They wanted to be in on a great victory. And of course, who doesn't? We all want to be in on a great victory, don't we? Especially if the victory has already been won. So, when a a start-up business uh, becomes a success, you wish you'd bought the shares right at the very beginning, don't you? Uh, I mean, imagine buying shares in in Apple Computer when it was just two men working in a garage. Everybody wishes they'd done that. Now, that is the idea in the background here. The Ephraimites wanted a share in the honour and glory of Gideon's victory. And they, no doubt, wanted some of the plunder as well because it seems they walked off with lots of gold. And Gideon answers them in line with that proverb that says that a soft answer turns away wrath. And he says to them in verse 2, you know, you've done an absolutely marvellous job. Um, You've killed those two Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. And what on earth have I done compared to you? It's really rather small. And so he praises them. And, of course, the praise is precisely what they want, and so they calm down. But the point is, you see, that the Ephraimites are in it for what they can get out of it. They want to be associated with success, with the success of God's champion. And, of course, we all like to be associated with success. That's partly, of course, isn't it, why people join a big church. Because a big church gives a feeling of success. Those two things don't always necessarily go together, but there is a certain buzz about being in a big church. And so people training for the ministry will often look for a position in a big church because they want to be associated with success. And, of course, there's something of that in all of us. So that's the the motivation of these Ephraimites in the first section of our passage. Um, It's ugly, 
the success syndrome. It's everywhere in our world and can I say that it's in our hearts as well. Why couldn't I be in at the victory from the very beginning? So that people won't just be telling the story of Gideon and his 300 men, but telling the story of me too. It's an ugly motivation. But then after that, uh, straight in, in the next section, we find a different mistake, which I'm calling the fear factor. You see, if the Ephraimites wanted to sign up for fame and fortune, in this next section, we meet a couple of Israelite towns in a different area who didn't actually want to get involved at all. They wanted to remain neutral because they were frightened. So in the section from verse 4 all the way through to verse 21, we read about Succoth and Peniel. So, you see, Gideon uh, and his 300 men have won this tremendous victory. Now look at verse 4. Verse 4, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. Now, geographically, they're crossing at uh, this point from the west to the east, and they come across a little Israelite town called Succoth. And uh, Gideon says, can you give us some bread? Uh, My men are starving. We're exhausted. We're pursuing these Midianite kings. Please, won't you help us? And they reply in verse 6, have you already won then? Apparently, um, in those days, when you won a battle, what you did was you cut off the hands of the enemy generals in order to prove it. And so, you see, that's why they ask, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah in your possession? If you haven't, why should we give bread to your troops? You haven't won yet. Why should we support you? And, of course... If you don't win, well, we are right in the path of those Midianites when they come back into Israel and we're frightened. And so Gideon threatens to punish them. And then he goes up to another town called Peniel, which is also east of the Jordan, and he asks them for provisions. Please help us, he says. Please abandon your neutrality. Get behind our campaign. Give us some food. And they give him the same answer. No, we won't. We're frightened. And so you see, if the Ephraimites were saying, we want to be associated with your success, well then the people in these two towns were saying, we're actually frightened to be associated with you. We want to remain neutral. Why? Because while we remain neutral, there's a chance that we will escape suffering. But if we sign up with you, well, we're actually in danger of suffering. 
And so the story goes on in verses 10 to 12. Gideon pursues the Midianite kings. He wins another tremendous victory, uh, routing the rest of the Midianite army. And when he returns, uh, Gideon punishes the men of Succoth. He kills the men of Peniel and also the two Midianite kings. Now, of course, it's hard, isn't it, to know what we're meant to think about Gideon's behaviour here. The storyteller doesn't actually give us a comment. I think to us it feels horribly, even disturbingly violent. Maybe it was. Maybe it was just the reality of warfare. But the important thing for our understanding is that the storyteller doesn't pass judgment either way. But the very clear implication is that these two towns should have signed up with Gideon. They wanted to remain neutral, but you see, they weren't neutral, were they? They were Israelites. That means they were already beneficiaries of Gideon's tremendous victory. The enemy had already been defeated. Most of the enemy soldiers were already dead and what's happening here is just simply mopping up operations. So they ought to have helped him. They ought to have supported God's leader. But out of fear they didn't. Now think about this. Because you see, for us, the Lord Jesus Christ has already won the decisive victory over Satan at the cross. And what's happening in our world today, well, it's simply the mopping up operations, isn't it? Satan's already been defeated. But there are still battles to be fought and there are still casualties that get taken. And of course, therefore, there is still room for fear. And the Church of Jesus Christ, I think, often looks like one leader with a small band of courageous followers. And rather like Gideon's men in verse 4, there they are, exhausted but keeping up the pursuit. And around them are people rather like the towns of Succoth and Peniel, quietly preserving their neutrality, fearful about being too open uh, concerning their allegiance to Christ. And I think all of us, me included, know that desire, don't we, to keep quietly neutral in certain situations. And uh, I'm guessing if you're a follower of Christ, you know that feeling in your heart, perhaps when you're at work, or you're with family members who are hostile to these things, or you're at the sports club, or wherever it is, you want to remain neutral because you want to escape criticism. I think we're most likely to feel this, aren't we, when the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ come into conflict with the sacred cows of the culture. Uh, And today, one of the greatest battlegrounds there, of course, is the area of sexual ethics. 
So a few months ago, do you remember the uh, American bishop who was invited to preach at the royal wedding? Do you remember that? Um, Earlier this year. He actually is the senior bishop of a province of the Anglican Communion that has deliberately and repeatedly practiced and taught things that are forbidden by God in the Bible, especially regarding sexual ethics. He should not have been invited to preach at the royal wedding and he should not have been praised by the Archbishop of Canterbury. But you try saying that at work or at the sports club or amongst your family friends and you will wish that you had remained neutral like the people of Succoth and Peniel. And yet you see our leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, calls us to stand publicly with him. And although the anti-Christian pressure is real, it's intense, and the pressure to give way is very real, you and I must pray to be delivered from fear. In the New Testament, uh, Judas Iscariot is an example, I think, of both of these wrong motivations that we've been thinking about so far. Uh, In John chapter 12, we read that he used to steal money from the disciples' common purse because he was treasurer and he was able to do it without anybody finding out. And it seems from the record that Judas Iscariot was very happy to be associated with the Lord Jesus when Jesus was a success, when the crowds were cheering him because of all of his marvellous miracles. But as Jesus came closer and closer to the cross, and Judas realised that being a disciple was actually a rather costly thing, well, that was too much for him. And uh, he, as you know, betrayed the Lord and made shipwreck of his soul. So there are those two mixed-up motivations that I suggest are still with us in the church today. There's, There's wanting to be associated with success, and there's the fear of suffering that goes with being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then next there's this rather curious episode uh, with the ephod in verse 22 and following and I've called this the great transgression. So in verse 22 the Israelites say to Gideon who's won these amazing victories for them rule over us you, your son and your grandson because you've saved us out of the hand of Midian. In other words, what they're saying is, be our king, start a dynasty. And Gideon says, no, I won't rule over you, nor will my son, the Lord will rule over you. And uh, it sounds marvellous, doesn't it? I'm actually not sure how much he really meant it, because later we're going to see that he named one of his sons Abimelech, which means, my father is king. Uh, Melech means king, and uh, Abi or Avi 
means father. So if you name your son, my father is king, perhaps Gideon did secretly actually want to be king. After all, we don't know. But then Gideon says in verse 24, tell you what, there is one thing I would like. Uh, You've got a lot of gold from these Ishmaelites. That's just another word for Midianite. You've got a lot of gold in the battle. Won't each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder? And verse 25, they say, yep, no problem. And they spread out a cloth and they they throw these rings onto the cloth and it, it weighed quite a lot. And if you know your Bible history, you know that this smells really bad. Because the last time the people of Israel threw um, a load of gold earrings into a central pot was Exodus 32, Mount Sinai. And on that occasion, you remember, Moses was on top of the mountain talking with God. He was away for a long time. The people were getting restless. And in order to keep the peace, Aaron said to the people, give me your earrings Uh, I'll make a golden calf and you can worship that. And I'm sure you remember that was a complete disaster for Israel. And elsewhere the Bible describes what Israel did on that occasion as the great transgression. And you'll find that phrase, you can look it up later, in Psalm 19 and verse 13. I'll say more about that in a second. Well, Gideon doesn't actually make a golden calf he makes an ephod, which is um, it's a kind of priestly garment. Uh, it's a bit like a breast piece. And we're not told why he did it, but he makes it out of gold and it becomes a snare. And the people worshipped it. And uh, he puts it in his hometown... And he says, no, I'm not going to be king, but I am going to put this very valuable thing in my hometown and I am not going to stop you from worshipping it. And we think about this, what on earth's going on? And I think what's going on is very, very similar to the episode with the golden calf. Because when you make something and you worship it, and you give that thing first place in your life, that's idolatry. Now, you and I don't do that in a physical way with ephods or golden calves, but we do it spiritually. And so we say, don't we, I'm going to carve out my career, Uh, I'm going to carve out my ministry, and I'm going to worship my achievement. It's going to have first place in my life. Or I'm going to to fashion the lifestyle that I want. And I'm going to worship the lifestyle I've created. That's going to come first. That's idolatry. But sadly, uh, many Christians today go a step further than that. They say, actually, I'm going to shape my religion. What I call my Christianity. And I'm going to shape it the way I want it to be. So I'm going to call myself a Christian, but I'm not going to submit 
to the authority of God or to the authority of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to shape it to suit me because I actually want to be in control. Now, my friend, if you say that, you've made a golden calf. You've made a golden ephod. And uh, that's what the Bible calls the great transgression. What is that? Well, the great transgression is a conscious decision to turn away from the God you know has saved you and worship something else. And the writer to the Hebrews says, when you do that, you may find that there is no way back. So in verse 27, things are looking pretty awful in Israel. We're all of us feeling pretty depressed. And so lastly, won't you please notice with me the surprising good news at verse 28 and following. Uh, This section is the conclusion to the story of Gideon and we're told that Midian is subdued. That's good. Uh, We're told there's 40 years of peace. That's good. Uh, Gideon goes back home and he has 70 sons and lots of wives. Uh, He's a successful, powerful leader. And in verse 31, we're told he has a concubine, which is kind of a sort of second-class wife. And uh, she produces a son, and Gideon calls him Abimelech. And he turns out to be a real disaster, but we don't have to worry about him this morning. Then in verse 32, we're told Gideon dies at a good old age, which, as I said right at the beginning, is an unmistakable sign of God's favour. But as soon as he dies, the Israelites begin to worship the Baals again. They set up Baal Berith, which means Baal of the Covenant, and they worship it. And you remember back in chapter 6, one of the first things Gideon had to do was destroy an altar to Baal. And here we are right at the end of the story, right back where we started. And the question we should be asking as we read this is where on earth is the gospel? Where's the gospel? I mean, after all, the reason that we meet together in church on Sundays is to hear good news. I have no idea what what your life has been like this week, but if you come to church and, and all you hear from the pulpit is, well, here are some people behaving rather badly, and uh, there are some more people behaving rather badly, and there are some more people behaving rather badly, well, you're not going to go home after church and say, well, you know, I heard some marvellous good news this morning. So let me tell you where I think the good news is in the text. I think it is this, that it's in the midst of the mess, the mixed up motivations and the terrible behaviour, and there's been plenty of it, it's in the midst of that that God has sent a rescuer and there has been a real rescue. Look at verse 34. The Lord their God had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies 
on every side. Or verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. You see, there has been a rescue. Gideon is by no means a perfect rescuer, but in the midst of a seriously messy world, God has done a real rescue. Now you see, this is our God. And you see, Gideon's world is not so very different from the world into which the Lord Jesus came or the world in which you and I are living. The Lord Jesus came into a world in which there were tribal rivalries. There were Sadducees, there were Pharisees, there were Herodians, all kinds of different people who were in it for what they could get out of it. Success, influence, money. And it's the world we're living in too, isn't it? And the world that the Lord Jesus came to was a world in which people were actually frightened for standing up for what is right. There's a fascinating comment on this in John's Gospel, uh, which says that there were a number of important people in Jesus' day who actually knew in their heart of hearts precisely who Jesus was, that he was the Christ. But John tells us that these powerful men kept quiet because they were frightened of what would happen to them. Just like Succoth, just like Peniel. So the world into which Jesus came was just as ugly as the world in which Gideon did his marvellous rescue. And the world in which Jesus is still rescuing today is exactly the same. Because we recognise in others and in our own hearts all these sinful motivations. The desire to be associated with success, the fear of suffering for being a disciple of Christ, and the desire to shape our lives, our lifestyle and our religion to suit us. And all of that is there in our hearts. And it's in that world that God has sent the perfect rescuer. So you see, there is gospel here after all. We can go, go home today and say, we did hear good news at church this morning. Now we celebrate the fact in this church that uh, sometimes we are ten different nationalities on Sunday morning and we thank God for it. And some of you are going back home to churches in your different countries. And you know, wherever you live, that back home, it's messy. Your church back home may be absolutely marvellous in many ways. I'm sure that it is. But you also know it's not perfect, don't you? Just like St Barnabas. So it's good to know, isn't it, that it is in the mess that God does his rescuing work through the Lord Jesus. And I want to encourage each one of us this morning to look into our own hearts and say, Lord, please will you help me not to be the type of Christian who simply wants to be associated 
with success. Please help me not to be the kind of Christian who is cowardly and afraid of suffering for the cause of Christ. And please help me not to be the kind of Christian who shapes my Christianity to suit me. Rather, please help me to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Great God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that into a lost and messy world you sent the Lord Jesus and that the Lord Jesus came in his infinite love to rescue And we thank you that in some measure each of us has begun to benefit from that rescue. And we pray that we might be those who follow and serve the Lord Jesus with a greater purity of heart and a greater purity of motive. And we ask it for his name's sake. Amen.